0: Good morning, church. I get the uh, the blessing and the privilege to bring the word of God to you today, filling in for Pastor Steve, who is not supposed to be back from his military duties yet. But praise God, got home safe and is uh, is here with us this morning. But in any case, we're going to be going to the Psalms this morning, Psalm 32. Uh, if you'd like to open up to psalm 32. We'll read the whole thing. We'll touch on the whole psalm, although we'll spend most of our time probably in the first half. And once you're there if you could stand with me out of reverence to God and to his word, we will read together the title of this, we're simply calling finding true happiness, finding true happiness. So All right. Well, seeing that you're all standing, let's go ahead and read all of Psalm 32. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of God. Let's go to to God one more time in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, just for allowing us to come together this morning. We know it is a a great privilege and a great blessing that we can come and gather together in your name, Lord, freely to, to sing praises to you, to pray to you, to fellowship together. And Lord, now to open your word. Uh, together and, and look to you in it, Lord. And, and as we do, Father, we, we pray that, uh, Lord, that you would do the work that only you can do, Lord. We, we know our weakness, that we are ever in need of your grace and your mercy to help us not only to read and to understand, but also to apply uh, to our hearts what we hear from your word, Lord. So uh, that's what we ask of you this morning, that you would remove distractions or, or, or anything that might be preventing us from hearing you, and that you might do the work of your grace in our hearts to bring conviction, encouragement, whatever you might see fit, whatever we need, Lord, that we might be all the better for it, and that we might glorify you more in our lives because of it. So we pray that you'd be with us, that you'd go before us, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> well, the, uh, the late actress Audrey Hepburn was once quoted as saying this, the most important thing is to enjoy your life. To be happy, it's all that matters. To be happy, it's all that matters. And I, I think in, in many respects that this, this does echo the sentiment of our culture, that search for happiness, for true happiness and whatever means might accommodate that and when we're speaking about happiness in the sense of course in, in speaking of true or ultimate happiness we're speaking of more than just the purely emotional feeling aspect of it more than just the the joy and the pleasure also involved in true and ultimate happiness as a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment and all, and so if there's any truth to that statement that this happiness is, is really a, one of the highest priorities for our lives, or even if we just find that statement maybe intriguing, then uh, it begs the question, well, what is true happiness? What is ultimate happiness? And more importantly, maybe, well, where is it found? How am I to obtain, you know, this ultimate happiness, this joy and pleasure and, and satisfaction and fulfillment and all? Well, in looking to the world and trying to find some answers and see what the culture around us might say, I ran across a couple of interesting articles, one of them uh, by a woman named Anjali Rajput. She wrote an article titled, Are You Living Life With True Happiness? And she she started off seemingly well, actually. She asked the question, as we just did somewhat, uh, what is happiness? And she states that, well, happiness is something that everybody wants. And I wouldn't necessarily uh, disagree with that, I think if we were to take a poll around the room or even around the world, most people would say that, yes, they want to be happy. So she says, uh, what is happiness? And happiness is something that we all want. And she mentions there that we, we often assume that material things or ideal relationships or experiences, that that's going to bring about true happiness. But then she, she rightly states that the feelings associated with these, they're often momentary. They're fleeting. So she starts off well, but she kind of takes a hard left, if you will, um, in her article when she says this. And I'll just kind of quote it to you. She says, people get in relationships or marriages because they seek happiness in their partner and suddenly one day they have an argument or a fight and you feel that that happiness is gone. We all want to be with our friends and our family because we feel happy in their company. We seek happiness in traveling, enjoying different cities, capturing scenic beauty in our cameras. But don't you think your happiness is associated either with materialistic things, places, or other people? The truth is we're looking for happiness in the outside world, and we don't even understand the actual meaning of true happiness. And this is what she says. She says, true happiness is happiness inside of you. True happiness is enjoying your own company and living in peace and harmony with your body, your mind, and your soul. True happiness is a state of mind constantly being in love with yourself. And she goes on to quote Elizabeth Gilbert, the author... That says, uh, and says this happiness is the consequence of personal effort. You fight for it, strive for it, insist upon it, and sometimes even travel around the world looking for it. You participate relentlessly in the manifestations of your own blessings, and once you've achieved a state of happiness, you must never become lax about maintaining it. You make a mighty effort to keep swimming upward into that happiness forever. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very me centered, me focused. Uh, happiness. Happiness is found inside of me, being satisfied with myself and maybe expressing myself uh, in whatever way makes me happy. It's very self-centered, self-focused sense of happiness. Well, another article, this one from Psychology Today, gave kind of a different perspective. And it said that the, the source of the true happiness comes by, basically by three different uh, areas, or there's three different sources of true happiness. Good relationships, a job or a hobby that, that you enjoy, and then some sort of pro social behavior some sort of giving back helping others contributing to society and and these although they're they're good things these are outward focused rather than inward focused even though there's good parts to those things um, as we'll see i think these cannot be the source of true and lasting or ultimate happiness uh, you know i i think again to even though that these are Uh, kind of opposite ideals, opposing ideals, inward and outward, kind of opposite ends of a spectrum, if you will. But this generally, or this really encapsulates, really, the the practical ideologies of our culture. Live for happiness, live for fulfillment and pleasure by whatever means might accommodate, whether that's finding it in yourself or uh, outside of yourself in uh, relationships and worldly pursuits and things. And what we'll see as we look at our text, though, Again, is that these ideologies, even the good parts of them, because there are good aspects of these things, but even the good parts of those, they fall far short in bringing about uh, true and lasting happiness, or as the scripture will call it, true blessedness. Now, before we begin looking at the the psalm, I want to a little bit more make clear the difference between how the world might define and and explain the source and the experience of of happiness and how the scriptures do so. The world would tell us that happiness here is is centered, uh, again, really around emotions and um, feelings, a state of mind, and that the, the source of that is found, again, either in yourself, love and satisfaction in self, or in other people, and finding that happiness in, in worldly pursuits. And the reason that we're talking about happiness, or that I'm speaking about happiness, in case you're, you're wondering, because the psalm here, at least in the ESV, it doesn't contain the word, the English word happy or happiness. The CSB, if you're reading that, does have joyful or joyfulness. But the reason that we're speaking about happiness is because the word that's translated there as blessed can very literally be uh, tr- translated as happy. And it, it suggests, and you could even define this term here, blessedness or happiness, is a a sense of happiness that comes as a result of experiencing favor, such as by divine grace. And so we'll see a little bit about what that means here in a moment. But even though blessed it suggests this idea of happiness, it's not a one-to-one correlation of meaning that is, is ex- expressed by the culture um, versus that in Scripture. You see in Scripture, the, the concept of this happiness or, or blessedness, it goes far beyond feelings and emotions, uh, especially those grounded in life and in the world here a couple of examples for you deuteronomy thirty three twenty nine and dirty Deut- deuteronomy thirty three twenty nine. It says, happy are you, O Israel. Same word there translated happy. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. And here it, it does seem to suggest a, a, a happiness in the sense of a, maybe a pleasurable experience because they're God's people. God has saved them. He's delivered them. He's going to be their God. He's going to go in their midst. He's going to provide and protect them. And of course, this brings about that sense of happiness that we might associate with, with happiness and all. But then we read something like Job 5.17, where it says, behold, blessed, same word, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. And here the word, it, it doesn't seem to imply happiness in terms of a pleasurable experience necessarily, but he is blessed due to the fact that God is concerned with him. And that's extremely important to understand and keep in mind as we look to the text and we differentiate between what the world might consider happiness and what the Bible proclaims is the only source of true and lasting blessedness. True and lasting blessedness. So again, where the world around us, it might say that this true happiness or blessedness, it's grounded in love and satisfaction of self, relationships, jobs, hobbies, etc. The scriptures, in absolute contrast, proclaim that the only source of true and lasting blessedness, this happiness, joyfulness, satisfaction, fulfillment, is grounded in our status before God. Now this, I, this idea of blessedness in the scriptures, it has no regard to individual or social concerns, or rather it's, it's grounded purely in our status before God as those who have experienced his justifying grace. We'll speak more about that as we go. John Calvin said, those only are blessed whom God has reconciled so, to, so as to acknowledge those for his children whom he might justly treat as his enemies. Matthew Henry, speaking on this blessedness, is coming by the experience of God's grace and justification, the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. He says that this is the ground of this blessedness, that this is the fundamental privilege from which all other ingredients of blessedness flow. It's the foundation. It's where it all begins. It's where we find true and lasting happiness is in God's justifying Grace. You see, our status before God is being justified, and we'll speak on that in a moment here, Uh, being forgiven of our sin, being reconciled to God. This is the grounds and the only way to possess and enjoy true and lasting blessedness, eternal blessedness, regardless of the circumstances of life in this world. And this status, it only comes about as God restores us to Himself and He redeems us from our sinful condition. So, as we look through the psalm here, David, it's a psalm of David, um, of course in the title there, but this psalm, through the psalm, David, he's going to show us uh, first how this blessedness comes about. How do we obtain this blessedness? Uh, He shares personal experience that drove him to seek the Lord's forgiveness. He then assures the reader of God's grace and mercy towards those who would also seek the Lord uh, for forgiveness. And then he shares wisdom from his experience uh, to the reader, and and, and really through all of it, just like... uh, through all other scriptures, ultimately, we are being pointed forward to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only one and the only way in which any of it could ever really be realized. Now, as a note, before we, as, before we look at the psalm here, just as a kind of a side note, I suppose, um, I would say that I, I believe the psalm, it does carry application for both the initial experience of God's justifying grace, that's to say for the unbeliever who experiences that first work of salvation there, um, but it also, it also carries application for the ongoing experience of God's grace for the Christian, the one who seeks the Lord in repentance of sin. This is, it's, after all, this is considered a, a penitential psalm. It's an expression of repentance for sin. And so we can talk a little bit about both of those uh, in more detail as we conclude in just a little bit. So let's start here in verse 1 and 2 and see how this blessedness is obtained. And, and here David describes for us, uh, the, he says, that the blessed one and the blessed one, there truly is a change in status and a change in character. So if you look at your Bibles with me again, let's read verses 1 and 2 together. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, David begins the psalm by showing explicitly what is the source of true blessedness, true happiness, and what he says is again that it 's ground up or it 's grounded in it 's bound up in our status before God and this change in status as we've already mentioned has to do with our being justified in the sight of God. You see, uh, the scriptures proclaim unequivocally throughout that all people are born into this world in a state of sin. Paul demonstrates that uh, clearly in Romans 5:12 through 21 where he explains that the sin of Adam resulted in the condemnation of all his posterity. So every person, every human being born since our first father, Adam, since the fall, we've all been born with a sin nature. We've all been born into this world in a state of spiritual death, and we are inherently guilty before God because of these things. And this, again, this truth is, It's expressed clearly throughout the scriptures. And so because of this, we have not, nor are we capable to obtain on our own, the needed righteousness to enter into the presence of our God. We are simply unfit in and of ourselves. And so because this is true, we are in need of being justified. And to be justified means that we are freed from the penalty of sin. Justification is—it's a legal term. It's as they say, courtroom language here, and as used in Scripture. It indicates the change in status from being both guilty and unrighteous to not guilty and righteous in the sight of God. And so, when God justifies a person, He, the righteous Judge of all creation, the Judge of His creation of His world, is declaring that the one who is guilty and unrighteous because of their sin is now not guilty. And righteous. We're going to come back to how he can do that and remain himself righteous in a little while. But you see, it's this change in our status before God that is the only source of true blessedness. And it's that which David is explaining here in our text. And he begins, he does so, beginning by illustrating three aspects of sin and grace. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, transgression, the term there that's uh, that's translated transgression there, uh, that means open rebellion. Transgression is willful deviation from God's command and his rule. Uh, You know, a a line has been drawn, and I have knowingly, willingly, and purposefully crossed over it. It's a a sin that's not an accident. I don't stumble into transgression to say I knew the right thing to do or, or not to do. And knowing full well, I did the opposite we know, and we know, that this is true, at least to some extent, for all people, including the unbeliever. Paul makes that clear in Romans 1, 18 through 23, where he says that sinful man suppresses the truth which is evident to all men in his unrighteousness. You see, being made in the image of God, all people have an inherent understanding of right and wrong. There's an ingrained standard or sense of morality that originates from our creator that is suppressed by our sinful hearts and minds. We don't suppress things that we have absolutely no knowledge about. Suppression is something that we do. It's an action. But that said, I, I do believe that this is the aspect of sin that Christians so awful, so often excuse me, uh, struggle with, so to speak. I, I think about it for a moment. You know, the vast majority that we come as Christians, that we come seeking the Lord's forgiveness, is it not because we have done something that we knew we ought not to do? Or vice versa you know I, I know it 's sinful to fill in the blank i know it 's sinful to x, y, or Z, uh, but I did it anyway, and, and of course, uh, you know often we 'll try to rationalize or justify our uh, our actions at least in the heat of the moment there, um, however, we know that we 're in sin, knowingly will, willingly purposefully transgressing transgressing the lord 's commands. Uh, think back for a moment here, just think back to sometime recently that you have sinned against the Lord. And think to yourself, you know, could, could I have not done that? Could I have restrained myself? Could I have made the God-honoring choice to fight the temptation to sin, and, and the truth is, as people, as Christians, redeemed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit for sanctified godly living, the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, then yes, we could have resisted temptation. We could have honored the Lord in making the right choice and not sinning against him. You see, this, this, this is transgression. It's a, it's a willful It's a purposeful disobedience to the Lord, and it is, so to speak, it is a slap in the face by the creature to the creator. It's that shaking of the little dust fist at the creator there. And this transgression, when we do this, this transgression, it results in a heaviness of guilt, a burden of guilt is laying upon the heart and the conscience of the guilty one. I believe David will point even further to this soon in the psalm there. And, and even apart, again, even apart from a saving knowledge of God, this transgression, you know, going against conscience and what we know inherently to be right and wrong must lay a burden of guilt upon the unbeliever. I think certainly that has something to do with why Paul would say that sinful man suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness. It's because we're going against our conscience. We know it's right. This is why we don't have to teach children uh, you know, that it's wrong to hit and steal and say bad words and all those things. You know, I mean, they, they know inherently uh, there's a standard uh, that is ingrained uh, that comes from our Creator, and so we, you know, we have, we suppress those things. Um, so of course, this, you know, this transgression it must lay a, a heaviness, a burden, even on the heart of the unbeliever to some extent. Well, the psalmist here, David, he says that blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And this term forgiven, it implies the idea of something uh, being lifted up, something being carried away. And so as, as transgression, as it brings this heaviness and this burden of guilt upon us, the implication here is that uh, that burden and guilt of such sin is removed. You know, it's, it's lifted off. It's carried away. You know, as a, as a sinner, I've rebelled against God. I bear the guilt of my transgressions. But because of his glorious grace that's given us in Jesus Christ, our transgressions are forgiven. That burden is lifted off. It's carried away, it relieving me of the heaviness of that guilt, never to be carried again. If you've ever read the classic uh, Pilgrim's Progress, I, what came to mind with me was at the beginning when Christian is carrying around this, this heavy burden. Um, if you know this, the book, the story, then maybe that'll uh, you can relate there. But, but here he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression... Is forgiven. Well, he continues, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Well, this is probably the more common term that for sin that we're familiar with, and it means simply to, to fail or to miss the mark. You know, as, as those created in the image of God, there's an objective standard of righteousness that has to be upheld if we are to enjoy the blessing of communion and fellowship with the Lord. And this standard of righteousness is nothing short of of absolute perfection. It's sinlessness. This is what we were created for. It's a reflection of the perfectly righteous character of God in every respect, in, in every aspect of our lives, from our motives and our thoughts to our words and our deeds. And this standard of righteousness is is shown forth perfectly in Jesus Christ, the one who never sinned, the one who always does the will of the Father, the one who was and is the express image Of the glory of God. And the problem that we have, I I think, in not really understanding or respecting the gravity of such a calling to this standard of righteousness, which which is, again, uh, the objective standard for all people, uh, believer or unbeliever alike, as those made in the image of God, the problem that we have in not respecting the gravity of such a calling and an expectation is that we most often compare ourselves to other people as if theirs is the righteousness which we must meet or exceed. Classic uh, examples would be Hitler and Mother Teresa, right? Um, I, I may not be the best, I may do some bad things, but hey, I'm not a Hitler. Uh, I try to do my best, I do good, but I'm no Mother, mother Teresa. And you know, the thing is that nothing can be further from the truth there. There's no human being to whom we must measure up to. Uh, the standard of righteousness to which we measure up, or we are to measure up to, is expressed explicitly. In the person of Jesus Christ, he and he alone is the standard. And, you know, if we're to think lightly of this as if it's some small matter or, um, uh, you know, if, if it's not as heavy of a calling as, as maybe we may consider, well, well think about these, these uh, striking words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ, Jesus, speaking in Matthew 5, 17 through 20 about the law, where he says, you know, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill, and the law will by no means pass away and all. When he's speaking there, he says this to his listeners. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom Now, we can say what we will about the the Pharisee and the scribe and the Pharisee, but at least outwardly, looking at them, um, these are the ones who know that their whole life is dedicated to knowing the law and teaching the law and keeping and acting out the law, uh, demonstrating it, keeping it to a T, at least again, outwardly, as far as humanly possible. We know there are issues with them, but to look at them and to say, well, if your righteousness doesn't exceed these who live every moment of every day for righteousness and trying to, you know, meet this this righteousness, if you don't exceed that, well, then you're hopeless. And to make matters even worse, he ends there in verse 48 of the same chapter saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect having a perfection on par with God himself. We'll see again, we'll see how all of these things are possible as we conclude in just a bit. But you see, friends, the bad news for us is, you know, is God does not grade on a curve, you know, there's no point system with him. He doesn't take the highest grade in the class and say, that'll be passing. He doesn't, you don't stand before him in judgment. He says, well, you came in at an 83. It's not the best, but, but you enter into the joy of your master because you, you've got a passing grade. That's just not how it works. He's, he set the standard for those made in his image as his perfect righteousness. And the, the reality, the, the sad reality is that we all fall desperately short of hitting such a mark. Romans 3.23, Paul makes that clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that universal qualifier, every human being who has ever lived, we all fall short, we all sin, and fall short of the glory of God. Matthew Henry, again, he, he says that in our sin, we are loathsome in the sight of God, unfit for communion with him. We are simply unfit in our sin. Well, the psalmist says that blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Uh, This sin, the failure to live rightly according to God's commands, uh, it brings about guilt and shame. And David here, he tells us that the blessed one is the one whose sin has been covered, meaning that it's been concealed. It's been put out of sight, not to be seen. Uh, Think back to the garden, if you will, to the Garden of Eden, that first sin in Genesis 3, where once the people, Adam and Eve, enjoyed the intimacy and communion with the Lord as he would come into the garden there. And as soon as sin entered... There was guilt and there was shame. And what did they do when they heard God coming? Well, they ran and they, they hid from God. They hid from his sight. That shame and that guilt that they felt because of their sin uh, caused them to see themselves. We could say, I guess, that they were unfit. They had to hide from the presence of God. You see, our sins, our failures, they have to be covered if we're to stand in the presence of God and enjoy intimacy and communion with him. And that's what David says is, blessed is the one whose sin is covered, it's concealed. William Van Gimeren, in his commentary, says that this covering of our sin, he says, it's the gracious act of atonement by which the sinner is reconciled, and the sin becomes a matter of the past so that the Lord no longer brings it up as a ground for his displeasure. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Well, continuing on, David says, "Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity." And iniquity, we could uh, it could very simply be defined as sin or guilt that's worthy of punishment. It's there's a focus on the liability of the 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 guilt that is incurred because of our sin, the debt. Maybe we could say, and it's been explained, iniquity is as perversion, as a, a twisting of rectitude. You know, as a as a uh, inner moral distortion of the fallen nature, some have called it, you know, a a perverting and a twisting of what God creates to be good, of God's rule, his law, and things that he calls to be good. It's also iniquity has been described as continual sin, uh, as as when one gives themselves over to sinful actions or a sinful lifestyle. So it would seem to be a conscience and intentional act, uh, just as with transgression, maybe some of those nasty sins we might we might say, well, the text says that the blessed person is the one whom the Lord does not count iniquity; that He does not count their iniquity. And this this term counts here. It, it's been traded, translated also as impute. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity? Maybe you've heard that. To impute is to say that something is possessed or is or belongs to a person, is possessed by a person, or belongs to them, or that something is credited to their account. It is charged to their account. And that goes well with understanding the idea that iniquity is concerned with liability for incurred guilt worthy to be punished. Uh, An opposite, uh, not a guilt, but a righteousness, um, if you will, uh, application of the same word is in Genesis 15 6. You're probably familiar there, where it says that Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteousness. You see there, Abraham, the the one who is sinful and guilty, just as we are as every other human being, he was on the basis of his faith there. He is reckoned, he is counted, he is imputed righteous by God. And here the psalmist, he says, the truly blessed one is the one whom the Lord does not count their sins against him, even the ugliest and most perverse sins that we could commit. And praise God, Psalm one thirty three and 4 says something similar there. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Uh, If you were to count our sins against us, Lord, who could stand? And the answer, of course, is nobody. But with you there is forgiveness, and praise God for that. You see, true blessedness comes about because God, who would be absolutely just in counting all of our sins, uh, the intentional ones as well as our sinful failures, and shortcomings. He would be perfectly just in counting all of our sins against us, but instead he forgives us. He covers our sin. He doesn't count them against us, but instead he regards us as justified, as being righteous in his sight. Well, David, further in this, in the last part of this verse there in verse two, he says that the blessed person is not only the one whom the Lord does not count their sins against them, but this is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit, and this is that indicating that change in character of the blessed one in their approach to God regarding their sins you, to see to say that there 's no deceit deceit there it speaks of duplicity you know of, of intentional deception it means that there's, uh, it means that the intention of my profession. Is not sincere. Uh, you can define this as misleading falsehood. You see, the point to understand here is the one who comes to the Lord seeking forgiveness, the one who experiences God's justifying grace, is the one who comes sincerely and honestly in his confession of sin and his profession of faith. You know, uh, we know if we deny that we have sin, Um, if there's a denial of sin before the Lord, then there is no true repentance and thus no forgiveness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So we know if there's a a complete denial of sin, well, then there is truly no repentance, of course, and no forgiveness. But also if there's a withholding of sin, if there's a a misleading falsehood about my sin, if there's duplicity, if you will, in my confession, then there cannot truly be genuine repentance and forgiveness. No, blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know our confession can also be deceitful if it 's conducted merely in a going through the motions type of sin simply or simply just attempting to remove ourselves from the consequences of our sin out of regret for the consequences coming before the lord that 's deceitful if we 're not coming if we 're not coming in true repentance, grieving and sorrowful over our sin or we 're withholding our sin before the Lord, then there cannot be true repentance, and thus true forgiveness. Uh, Matthew Henry, again, to quote him, he he says it perfectly on here. He says, the pardoned sinner, the one who's been justified before God, the pardoned sinner is the one who does not dissemble with God in his profession of repentance and faith, nor in his prayers for peace or pardon, but in all these is sincere and means, as he says, that does not repent with a purpose to sin again, and then sin with a purpose to repent again. You know, a a true confession, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, uh, to The one in whose spirit there is no deceit is not one who comes and repents knowing that they're going to go right back into that sin later on or the one who sins assuming, well, I can just go and stand before the Lord and confess this again. No, the truly blessed one is the one whose transgression are forgiven, the one whose sin is covered, and the one one in whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and then the one whose spirit there is no deceit in their profession and repentance there. Well, Let's move on there, seeing the grounds of this uh, true blessedness, and let's see how, in David's life here, in his personal experience, how this blessedness was uh, deterred in verse 3 and 4. If you'll read with me, it says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Well, having explained the, the grounds and the source of this blessedness, he now shares this personal experience that drove him to seek the Lord's forgiveness. And what we see is a, a clear contrast here uh, that comes, or, or a clear contrast in the experience that comes from confession and repentance of sin that leads to blessedness versus withholding such which leads to Suffering there, and the, the contrast he states clearly without ambiguity, he says, "For when I kept silent, and the implication there is that David is living it would seem in a state of unconfessed, unrepentant sin, not not acknowledging it before the Lord, not seeking god 's restorative grace he 's attempting to do what we 've all done i 'm sure at some point in our lives he 's either attempting to live alongside his sin, or maybe pretend that it's not really there, or it's really not that significant. Uh, Maybe if I just avoid acknowledging the sin within my own conscience or with the Lord, then I won't have to deal with it. Kind of like maybe we do with our parents when we're young. You know, if I just don't say anything, maybe they won't say anything. If I don't bring up my sin, well, maybe God won't bring up my sin. But nothing could be further than the truth with the Lord. We know that God disciplines the child whom he loves. That's what Hebrews twelve six tells us. That's what Job told us. And his purpose for his people is holiness. And so he's never going to turn a blind eye to sin in the lives of his people. And the withholding of, the, of sin, what we see in David here, is suffering. suffering. Suffering that's primarily spiritual in nature, but does carry a physical aspect as well. I, I think we can all understand probably and, and relate to this. He says that his bones wasted away, that he was groaning all day long, and that his strength was dried up. And this could be, as some have said, uh, purely metaphorical, that he wasn't necessarily physically suffering. These are uh, describing his loss of spiritual vitality, but I think it it includes both. Now, it, it is primarily, again, it is primarily spiritual, in that when we're giving ourselves over to sin, when we're not confessing and repenting of sin, then there, there really is no peace in our hearts and minds. Uh, you know, if we, as those who claim to be Christians, if we can live in unrepentant sin without issue, uh, then we're in a very dangerous place. We ought to take some, some time, really, to evaluate the genuineness of our, our profession here. Uh, Calvin, again, he implies this perfectly. He says, David confirms by his own experience the doctrine that he just laid down, namely that when humbled under the hand of God, he felt that nothing was so miserable as to be deprived of his favor. If we can live comfortably in sin, then something is terribly, terribly wrong. Sin hinders our relationship with the Lord, our intimacy with the Lord. It, It robs The peace and joy from your heart. It severely weakens our ability to focus on spiritual matters and praying and scripture reading. It clouds our heart and our mind. It depletes our spiritual activity or vitality, which is what David's implying there, I think, when he says his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, just as a hot summer day. You know, climbing in the mountains or whatever that depletes your energy. Well, the same thing: giving yourselves over, or you know, withholding confession and repentance, it wears on you on a spiritual level. But so also, um, living like this in any amount of time certainly must spill over into the physical realm as well. It certainly eventually catches up with us in our bodies, and it begins to affect us emotionally, psychologically, even physiologically in our bodies. You know, unconfessed, unrepentant sin brings about a whole array of suffering uh, is probably why I, I would say, and we could probably go on and on about this, but, but this is probably why we, when we live in a, a time, if we keep going in unrepentant sin, withholding confession, if we keep living a life giving ourselves over to sin, you know, we can experience those symptoms that are similar to clinical stress, anxiety, depression. It, it depletes your spiritual vitality, but it begins to affect your body and mind as well. Now, notice also what he says is the source of his suffering. He says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And we should all understand, of course, that there are real worldly consequences for the sinful decisions we we make. Oftentimes, our suffering, our quote unquote suffering, is a result of bad or sinful uh, decisions I've made. It's not the devil harassing me, and it's not God disciplining me necessarily. It's part of being a fallen, broken person, living in a fallen, broken world. You know, if I went to the racetrack and bet the farm and lost all my money and came home and couldn't pay my bills or you know, provide for my family, it's not the devil harassing me and it's not God necessarily disciplining me. That's a, that's a consequence of a sinful decision there. However, there are plenty of times that we find that God himself is actually the source of our quote-unquote suffering experience, and it's always for a good purpose, You can remember that God disciplines the child whom he loves. Hebrews and Job, again, both told us that. And he disciplines the one whom he loves in order that, like a good father would, he might correct our destructive behaviors and lead us back on the path of holiness and sanctification. The purpose is restoration because he loves us. And though it may not feel good at the moment... It's actually an amazing act of grace and mercy. It is is God's gracious hand of suffering upon us. It is merciful affliction, we might say, that God might lead us back and restore us to himself. So let's look then at uh, at verse 5 there at David's experience where we see that this blessedness is then restored. Verse 5, if you read it with me, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So after withholding his sin and experiencing this suffering at the hand of God, David now turns to the Lord in confession and repentance in order that he might be restored. And he uses the same terminology as in the beginning of the psalm, transgression and sin and iniquity. And there we learn that the the source of true blessedness there is when those things have been dealt with rightly by the Lord as opposed to when David either withheld his confession or somehow attempted to deal with it himself, his sin himself. We already saw that he suffered as he restrained from confessing his sin when I kept silent. And here we see a kind of another example where he uh, alludes to how he deals wrongly with his sin when he says, I did not cover my iniquity. The implication here is that he must have in some way been trying to or assuming that he could somehow cover his own sins, perhaps, again, maybe just by not acknowledging them or trying to ignore them uh, altogether. Excuse me. Now, this is the same term that was used in verse one again. That we understood, and there we understood that the implication was that God, God alone, is the one who is covering sin. And and so, what we can learn, at, at least, regardless of how David was uh, attempting to deal with his own personal sins that are in view here, uh, what we can learn, at least, is that we, the guilty sinner, that we cannot cover our own sin. Uh, you know, and again, if you think back to the Garden of Eden there, and that first sin, Adam and Eve, when when sin entered, when sin entered. There into um, humanity. um, What did they try to do? They tried to cover their nakedness, and and their nakedness that uh, alludes to far more than just they were embarrassed because they were physically naked. This is this is um, really alluding to the guilt and the shame that came as a consequence of their sin. They heard God coming, they hid from God, and they attempted to cover themselves, their shame and their guilt. And of course, it was none other than God Himself, through a sacrifice nonetheless, who would cover them. And so. Adam and Eve could not cover their sin. David could not cover his sin, nor can we cover our sin and maintain intimacy and communion with the Lord. God must cover our sin. Well, here David says that he acknowledged his sin, that he confessed it to the Lord, that here he he regards his sin as sin. Maybe we can say he makes known his sin to the Lord. Not that the Lord does not know his sin already, but perhaps we can see this as, as he's admitting his sin. He's laying it open. He's laying it bare before the Lord. I'm guilty and I've sinned. He's not withholding. He's not holding back. He's not trying to hide or make excuses or, or blame shift. He's coming... Uh, coming as a, as Calvin would, uh, Calvin explains here, he comes being self-condemned, laying it all out on the line, Lord, I'm guilty, so that he might, as Calvin says, as a suppliant obtain pardon. David acknowledges his sin, and he confesses it to the Lord. And the result, the result of David truly, openly, and honestly confessing his sin to the Lord was that God forgave the iniquity of his sin. And this is not only the reality for David, Complete forgiveness, complete restoration, but this offers assurance to any who would come in like manner. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, Psalm 130 said. And this is really what David is instructing us next as he turns from the learner to the teacher, in a sense, um, through the Psalm. In verse 6 and 7, he begins by showing us a pattern and a promise. So let's read verse 6 and 7 there together. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Well, in light of his experience here, David now in, illustrates again a, a pattern and a promise for those who would seek the Lord's forgiveness. He says, therefore, because, of, because God will forgive the one who comes honestly uh, before him, genuinely uh, in grief over their sin and true repentance, uh, uh, therefore, because God will "...forgive and restore. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found." Put simply, the the pattern is to come to the Lord in prayer and confession confession of sin. The promise is that he will forgive and restore, that he will save us from the just judgment that comes, ultimately, for sin. And it's important that we understand that prayer is the pattern for seeking the Lord's forgiveness. You know, if we're ever to be reconciled to God, if we're going to be justified, if we are going to be declared righteous in His sight, free from the penalty do our sin, it's not going to be on account of anything we ever do in and of ourselves. We cannot hide or conceal or cover our own sin, and there is nothing that we could ever do to merit the needed righteousness to stand in his presence. True and honest prayer, it demonstrates a complete dependence on the Lord to do on my behalf what I could never do for myself, and it acknowledges him as my only hope for reconciliation. You see, prayer is the pattern for true repent, for true repentance and, and confession there. And he says, when he says there, uh, pray at a time when you may be found, it doesn't imply, I don't think, necessarily a time in which God cannot be found or maybe at a certain time of day or time of the week or all. Rather, the point that the, that the psalmist that David is making here is not to delay seeking the Lord in prayer uh, for forgiveness. You know, don't put it off. As the Spirit convicts and makes known my sin and my heart and my mind, it's, it's then that I ought to seek him in confession and repentance. There and then, at that moment, as soon as I'm cognizant of my sin, I should be confessing and repenting, knowing that God will restore. This is, it's a plea for urgency to seek the Lord in repentance and confession to be restored to him. Now, uh, for the unbeliever, though, this is especially urgent, because in a, in a real sense, for the unbeliever, for those who have not experienced God's justifying grace and had their forget, their sins forgiven, those who have not come to know the Lord, um, for the unbeliever, well, this is much more urgent, because, uh, because if you put off for too long the seeking the Lord's forgiveness for your sins and you die in your sins, well, then you stand accountable before the Lord. That's what the Bible tells us. It's appointed to die once, and then comes the judgment. Uh, what, what we could say for the unbeliever, this is more urgent, because uh, if you die, you will. There there is no, once you die and stand before the Lord, there is no chance for confession and repentance. It's simply too late, and so don't put it off. As soon as the Spirit is convicting, as soon as God is bringing your sins to your heart and your mind, run to him in confession and prayer and confession and repentance, knowing that God... Will forgive. And the assurance is just that, that that the scriptures give us concerning this confession is that God will forgive, that God will protect, that He will ultimately preserve His people in the time of judgment. You know, some have taken this as indicating that God's going to protect those who seek His. Forgiveness from troubles that come, uh, worldly troubles that come from suffering and discipline because of their sin. And there, there, there could be some truth to that, of course. But in the greater context, I think, of what the psalm is teaching here, and in the greater context of sin and grace, I, I really believe that ultimately this is providing the assurance that those who have experienced God's justifying grace through the forgiveness of their sins, that they will pr- be protected and preserved through the greater judgment of sin when all stand before him as the great and righteous judge and complete accountability. The promise there is that those who have been forgiving have nothing to fear when they come before their God. When the waters of judgment come, you are my hiding place. You will preserve me. There is a day, we know, when all people will stand before God. We're told in Revelation there that a day will come and that final judgment and books will be opened and will be judged. But I think... Again, here, the promise, the assurance, the hope that you can have as one who knows the Lord and has been forgiven is that uh, there is no fear when you come to stand before your God. Those who have been justified in his sight, those who belong to him by faith, uh, there's nothing to fear. He will preserve you and protect you through trouble, uh, and you will go on to glory with your God. Now, the end of the psalm, verses 8 through 11, uh, really, he offers some, some wisdom, some exhortation to a right response based on what he said, I, I believe. So let's go ahead and read the end, verses 8 through 11, where he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, there's differing views as to whether this is God now speaking, I will instruct you, I will teach you, I will counsel you, or if David, David, now from the clearer vision of hindsight, post-experience of sin and suffering and grace, is now taking the position of teacher rather than learner. And, you know, in a primary sense, it is God speaking, of course, since the entirety of Scripture is God's word, but in a maybe a more localized, immediate context sense, it would appear that David is the one now speaking. You know, having learned in far greater ways now of the grace of forgiveness, David is now, he will now be the one who will instruct and teach and counsel the hearer on the way to experience this same blessedness, this same restoration which he has experienced, he can draw from personal experience. You know, having known firsthand the misery that comes as we conceal our sin, and he can show uh, the way of reconciliation and relief, and the joy that it brings as we turn back to the Lord in confession and repentance. And what he does there, very simply and put very shortly, is he, he leads in the way of wisdom, if you will. He he says, "Don't be like." the horse, or the mule. Don't be like one who must be controlled in order to stay on the right path. Don't be like an irrational beast. Don't be like the one without understanding. Don't make it necessary that God have to use greater measures of discipline to lead you to repentance. And friends, if you truly belong to the Lord, then he will use whatever means he deems necessary to bring you to the point of repentance. I'm sure some of us in this room know that all too well. No, rather he says, listen to the words, the wise words of the king. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Enjoy the blessing of forgiveness. Know that God stands ready to forgive those who come in honest confession and repentance before him. And he, he finishes there the psalm by stating, that for the wicked, for those who would attempt to disregard or conceal their sins there, that there is nothing but sorrows, sorrows now and more so in eternity. However, for those who trust the Lord, the ones who seek the Lord in faith, trusting his promise to forgive, there is faithful love, there is rejoicing and gladness, there is an experience of true and lasting blessedness for those who receive God's justifying grace of forgiveness and reconciliation. So, how is it all possible then? Well, True blessedness, that joy and happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, contentment, all of that, it comes, as we've said, as we are reconciled to God. But, but how is God to forgive sin, which he has already declared the penalty for as death, spiritual death, eternal death? How is he to declare the not guilty, or excuse me, how is he to declare the guilty not guilty and the unrighteous righteous, and he himself remain perfect, holy, and altogether righteous. Well, I'm sure we've, maybe we've heard, or maybe many of us have heard the example or illustration from life, you know, in the world. We, we understand true justice. We understand why this is a problem. How can God forgive when the crime has been committed and the penalty maybe not yet paid or needs to be paid? Uh, if, if a person commits a crime, we know, if someone commits the crime of murder and they're caught and they go before a judge and and they say, well, I'm really sorry about that. I feel really bad. I'm really remorseful over what I did, and I'm, I'm, really, I'm, I'm really sorry for it. And if the judge says, well, you know, I, I can see that, you're, that you feel bad, that you're sorry, and you're remorseful, so we're just going to let you go. Just don't do it anymore. We know that that's not justice. We know that the crime has been committed, and the penalty must be paid. Remember, there's a liability for incurred uh, debt of uh, guilt and all. This, this psalm, it drives us. To, uh, back to, or it draws us back to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. If you don't know that section of Scripture, you ought to read it there, but there the Lord is proclaiming his name before Moses, and he, he gives us this great and terrible uh, description, I guess, of his name, and it, and it really presents us with the same problem. The Lord, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You know, how is it that transgression can be forgiven, that sin can be covered, and rather than counting our sins against us and regarding us guilty, not count them and regarding us righteous? How can he look at us who are guilty and unrighteous and count us perfect as he is perfect, call us righteous with a righteousness exceeding the, ph- the Pharisee, measuring up to the standard of perfection at being an image of bearer image-bearer of God requires. How is a sinful person to enter into this state of true and lasting blessedness if this is where it's found, and God himself even remain uh, perfect and holy and righteous? Well, contrary to what the world might tell us, we can't find this type of fulfillment or happiness in anything within ourselves or within the world around us, even in those good things that we talked about that we find enjoyment in. Um, and the only way to experience and enjoy true blessedness is by being, again, justified in the sight of God. And to do that, the only way that that is possible is through the gospel work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ does in the gospel, he does on our behalf what we could never do for ourselves. He, he lives the perfect life. He, he meets the requirements of perfect righteousness that is required for the image bearers of God. He earns it himself, perfect righteousness, and then he credits it to us so that our sinful failures and shortcomings can be covered. We are clothed, we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. He gives us his righteousness having met uh, the requirement himself, clothes us in his own righteousness so that to the point that when God sees uh, the Christian he sees the righteousness of Christ there, as it were. Well, then he suffers and dies on our behalf. He bears the guilt of our transgression and our iniquities. He, First Peter two twenty four says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He takes the burden of guilt and the debt that our sin uh, incurred, thereby relieving us of the burden and the penalty of the guilt of our sin. He then raises from the dead victoriously, defeating sin and death, putting an end to, uh, to such. On behalf of all who would ever believe on him in faith, to all who would ever come honestly and openly, confessing and repenting of their sins. You see, Jesus, he stands as our perfect substitute in both life and death, so that we might enjoy this true and lasting blessedness. You see, forgiven of our sins, we experience peace and joy. Reconciled to God, we enjoy intimacy and communion with him, and these things are only possible through Christ our Lord. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 21. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he goes on to say, for our sake, he made him, he made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, The guilt of our sin imputed to him, his righteousness given to us, our transgressions forgiven, our sins covered, our iniquities not counted to our to our account. You see, he takes the penalty of our sin and credits us with his own righteousness. So, so you see, God can remain just because the penalty for sin, it's paid. He's not simply looking over sin. You see, it's paid because it's either paid in Christ, the full measure of the wrath of God for sin meted out on him as our substitute, or we pay it ourselves when we stand before him as the judge of all creation, experiencing ourselves the full measure of the wrath of God for sins and internal condemnation. You see, this is why we can be forgiven. This is why we can, we can experience true blessedness in this life and in the life to come. It's because Jesus has done it all. Jesus has paid it all on our behalf. So for the Christian, if you're living in any unrepentant sin, if you're holding back in any way and you're Confession of sin, we'll, we'll seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in prayer. Confess and repent and, and rest in the truth that he stands ready to forgive because he's a gracious and merciful and loving God. Uh, confess your sin, repent of your sin, and you will be restored to him. For the unbeliever, if there's any... Unbeliever with us or listening, you know, stop looking for happiness and fulfillment and things that will never satisfy. And we know that they'll never satisfy the things of the world. We've all looked for them there. The world always lets us down. It's never enough. And the reason for that is because you were made for God and it's only in Him that you can find true and lasting peace and joy. If you were to die in your sins, you pay the price yourself. You stand guilty before Him. But if you seek the Lord, in true confession, in true repentance, if you look to him, if you believe in Christ by faith and his gospel work and everything that he did on your behalf, then you can rest assured too that he will forgive you'll be reconciled to your creator and you can experience the joy of true and lasting blessedness. You see, everybody wants to be happy. You know, everybody, all of us in, in some way or another, we're seeking after this true and ultimate lasting happiness, this blessedness. But the only source of that, the only way that this comes about, it's found only in Christ. And there, in that blessedness, is blessedness in this life and in that to come. Let's go ahead and pray.